This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were sworn in at a pared-down presidential inauguration ceremony at the White House yesterday. The new administration inherits some huge challenges, none more urgent than the ongoing pandemic, which has killed more than 400,000 Americans. Today, we're taking a closer look at what the first 100 days of the presidency means for Central Florida and what this new administration may do differently. When it comes to the pandemic, the response to the virus and the vaccine rollout, what changes can we expect? Well, joining Intersection for more, uh, Dr. Amish Adelja. He is the senior scholar with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Uh, Dr. Adelja, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Also joined by Justin Senior. He's the chief executive of the Safety Net Hospital Alliance of Florida. Justin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we're joined also by Abe Abariah, health reporter with WMFE. Abe, thanks as always. Thank you. Let's get the long view first. Uh, Dr. Adelja, back in December, you spoke to us on this show. You warned of a potentially pretty grim few months as the pandemic kicked in over the winter. Um, From what you've seen over the last few weeks, how is that scenario playing out? I think it played out as as we predicted. We knew there were going to be an inordinate number of deaths. We knew that hospitals would be worrying about capacity on a day-to-day basis. And we knew that there would probably be some hiccups with vaccine rollout. And I think all of that has really... Uh, proven to be true. I think what we what we saw is a lot of intensity of spread related to Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and New Year's. And we, we kind of didn't get the worst of it, but it was enough to really make hospitals, especially in places like Southern California, really worry about their viability based on the fact that they were completely inundated. They were running out of things like um, hospital beds, the ambulances were being diverted. Uh, they were worried about hospitals being able to pump enough oxygen through their, their uh, uh, their pipes to be able to get to all the patients. You know, all of that was something we, we knew was going to happen. And I think uh, we still have a couple more weeks uh, that are going to be rough with thousands of deaths per day occurring. Yeah, you, I mean, you're sort of talking about it in the past tense, but it strikes me that, um, you know, different things could happen down the track. And we have a, a new variants popping up in Florida as well as as other parts of the country. Is that a concern for you as well? Yes, I think that the new variants, the, the big concern I have is that if they are indeed more transmissible, we are going to see them come to dominate and people are going to have to be more on guard for these new variants because it's going to be more likely that you can track them when you're exposed. So we have to get better at hand washing, wearing face coverings, avoiding crowded and congregated places. And this really puts a lot of pressure on getting as many vaccines into people's arms as possible. We're basically in a race between these new variants and our vaccination pace. Mm-hmm. Speaking about what we might expect from the new federal administration, Joe Biden has talked about a national mask mandate. Um, Is it that simple? And do you think a step like that could make a significant impact on slowing down the pandemic at this stage? Right now, we've got a lot of community transmission, so no action is going to turn around this pandemic overnight, short of basically vaccinating all of the eligible population. But I do think trying to embrace the science, and, and that science has evolved over the pandemic that shows that face coverings can decrease transmission. I think that makes a big difference. And seeing leadership from the president is something that we've sorely lacked for most of this pandemic, where you see uh, uh, what we're seeing with President-elect Biden is that he's completely engaged in this pandemic. It's been, been a major priority. He's given multiple speeches. He's actually articulated many plans which incorporate many things that everybody in this field that's been studying pandemic preparedness has been asking for for basically a year now. So, so I do think there is a little, there is hope. And I think that the mask, uh, the mask policy of the Biden administration will be one that reflects science and it will set an example and set a new tone with how we deal with this pandemic. 
Uh, Abe, I want to bring you into this conversation. Let's talk about vaccinations for a minute. The first wave of Floridians who began to be vaccinated weeks ago are now completing their doses of the full course of the vaccine. Um, the Department of Health says around 100,000 people so far have been vaccinated. Nearly one million have had their first doses at least. What are you hearing from frontline healthcare workers about how this rollout is going? Because they were the first to line up, roll up their sleeves and, and get those shots. Um, you know, so far it's it's been going relatively smoothly, smoothly when you talk to the frontline healthcare workers. They, they've been happy to get this vaccine. Um, and there's a lot of demand, as you, you know, as, as obviously we've been reporting on pretty much any time either a health department or a hospital opens up, you know, or even publics opens up some way to get a, 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 a some way for you to get a vaccine, then you're seeing those slots being taken up pretty much immediately. You know, kind of big picture, as you mentioned, we, we've got about 2 million doses of the vaccine have been sent to Florida, according to the CDC. About 56% of those have actually been used. Um, now, 740,000 in the last two weeks, it's about 52,000 a day. So that is, you know, starting to ramp up. We're starting to see bigger numbers um, of people getting vaccinated per day. But, you know, we are seeing about 45,000 people who are behind, meaning they've already got the one dose, they're due for their second, and they haven't gotten it yet. And so the concern there is that you're going to start seeing people who maybe are seeing posts on social media from people who have gotten the second dose of the vaccine and had a stronger reaction to it where they, you know, developed a fever, felt bad, got, um, you know, some of those symptoms that are an indication that the vaccine is working, but, mm -hmm. you know, do make you feel lousy for a couple of days. So the worry is that some of that is starting to make it, you know, round and that people are starting to intentionally avoid getting their second dose as opposed to maybe just being, you know, a week or two behind. Mm -hmm. um, but from the big picture perspective, you know, um, Dr. Adalja can talk to this. You're, you're looking 70 to 80 percent of the population getting vaccinated for some level of herd immunity. And right now, uh, with the number of people we've got that have gotten the full vaccination, we're still less than 0.5% of the entire population of Florida getting vaccinated. So there's still a very, very long way to go until we start seeing numbers of vaccinations that could have an impact on the caseloads that we're seeing every day and, and the you know, downstream impacts to hospitals and deaths. Right. Well, Dr. Adolja, to that point, I mean, is Florida just a kind of a snapshot of the way the entire nation is playing out? Are we seeing some states kind of get this rollout done a little more smoothly? There are some states that are doing better than others. I would single out West Virginia, uh, the Dakotas, because they've kind of done this on their own and their state department, health departments have been able to move rapidly. West Virginia, instead of engaging the major pharmacy chains, which they don't really have in many parts of West Virginia, worked with independent pharmacies, and they were able to, to move very, very quickly. And you know, it's not surprising, West Virginia is a state that leads with vaccinations, kind of surprisingly to many people, but when it comes to measles vaccines, they have the highest rates in the, in the country. So, so there, there are some states that are doing better than others, but I think as a nation at all, in, in the entire picture, we, we have to basically have an all-hands-on-deck approach, kind of a warlike atmosphere to try and get vaccine into people's arms and really pull out all the stops because the longer it takes to get people vaccinated, the longer this pandemic will, will linger on and the longer our hospitals will worry about their capacity. Uh, well, that's probably a good point to bring uh, you into this conversation, Justin Sr., uh, with the Florida Safety Net Hospital Network. Uh, um, speaking of kind of like a warlike footing, we have heard stories from frontline staffers in hospitals about what it's like being on COVID wards. But when you think about 
rolling out the vaccine in hospitals in Florida, as they have in many states, have played a very important role in getting those vaccines into people's arms. Um, what's your kind of sense of how things are going? Is it sort of working how you anticipated when you started getting your hands on the first doses, uh, you know, several weeks ago? Um, it, it, it's it's working as as anticipated. I think I think it's going reasonably well. I don't think you can necessarily get something that is this logistically complicated off the ground without any hitches. Uh, but but ultimately, I think uh, I think that hospitals in Florida and probably around the country are doing a pretty good job. Our, our hospitals are certainly not sitting on vaccine. Uh, they've definitely had enough willing takers, and they played obviously a big role in getting their own frontline healthcare staff. Um, vaccinated and have actually pivoted during January to vaccinating the 65 and over population mm-hmm. and have uh, done a very large percentage of the 65 and over. You know, the, the, the hope here and the strategy here is, is to make sure uh, that that population is vaccinated. If you can get the long-term care resident community vaccinated and you can get the 65 and over population vaccinated in Florida, that population has been responsible for about 60% of the hospitalizations in the state and has been responsible for probably approaching 90% of the fatality. So you can really change the game if you can have the follow-through that you need over the course of the next couple of months to get all of that population or as much of that population as you possibly can vaccinated. Is there another way to look at it, though? I mean, talking about the the impacts, we're seeing that in the 65 and older population because they are more vulnerable. Um, Hospitalizations and mortality, to your point, uh, tend to uh, affect that group of the population more. But if you were to vaccinate uh, the population that is doing more of the spreading, the younger population, would that also be an effective method of, of getting a handle on this? I, I think that uh, ultimately the CDC recommendations right now, as well as the strategy in Florida, is probably the right one. Um, we actually are seeing a bit of a decline in the hospital census, and it never quite got to the point uh, in January that it reached back in July. So, so the mm-hmm. peak so far uh, has not been as high, and hopefully we can turn the corner. Um, and, and there are two, two kind of aspects to turning the corner. When it comes to frontline healthcare workers, one of the biggest problems back in July, and I assume as, as other hospital systems around the country are reaching the peak in recent weeks, one of the big problems is, is when it's very prevalent in the community, you, your staff is going to catch COVID in the community, mm-hmm. regardless of all the precautions that you take uh, at the hospital itself in terms of stopping the spread of infection. And hospitals are in the business of infection control. But right. people catch it in the community. When you have hundreds of staffers knocked offline, um, it really reduces your capacity. You might have brick and mortar that says you have 1,600 beds, but you can't staff it. And it really creates an issue. So getting the frontline healthcare workers done is a big deal. It really reduces the chance that you're going to overwhelm your, uh, your actual physical plant and your, your, uh, your, your beds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, getting the people that are most likely to end up in the hospital vaccinated, I think, is the right way to prioritize it. And I think we're starting, hopefully we're starting to see some of that impact right now. Because like I said, over the last seven to ten days, we've seen a pretty, pretty strong decline in hospitalizations, the hospital census in the state of Florida. If you're just joining me, my guest, uh, Justin Sr., he is the Chief Executive of the Safety Net Hospital Alliance of Florida. We're also joined by Dr. Amish Adolja, Senior Scholar with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and WMFE Health Reporter Abe Abariah. Abe, I want to come back to you for a moment and, and let's bring this conversation back to where we started, which was what difference may we see or what uh, kind of approach may we see from this new Biden administration? One of the things he has talked about 
is this notion of vaccinating 100 million people in the first 100 days of his presidency. Given what we know about how the rollout has gone so far, what's your sense of, of how that might play out over the next three months? The big kind of question mark with getting to 100 million vaccinations in 100 days, you know, because we are seeing the ramp up right now. And we are seeing increased numbers across the country as, you know, some of the kinks get worked out and the mm-hmm. supply chain gets worked out. The big kind of question mark, though, is going to be the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and what ultimately ends up happening with that. Uh, we They did release some data um, last week that was, uh, you know, so far so good. Um, we haven't seen a lot of the efficacy numbers yet. They haven't actually released some of that. So we're waiting on some of those. But if the Johnson & Johnson vaccine ultimately is effective and is able to go before the FDA and get emergency use authorization, This is a vaccine that is a uh, potentially one shot rather than two shots, which takes away a lot of the logistical issues that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you're talking about Johnson and Johnson, which, you know, Fierce Pharma was reporting back in November that Johnson and Johnson is talking about having the potential to manufacture a billion doses in 2021. Uh, So, you know, if you're talking about, um, you know, really being able to scale up a vaccination program, Johnson and Johnson is probably going to be uh, sort of the, the best hope for that. And, and Governor Ron DeSantis has talked about that very specifically with essential workers and how, you know, maybe that Johnson & Johnson vaccine is when you start allowing people who are under 65 get vaccinated because then you can drop off, um, you know, the, you, you can drop off the vaccine at Disney and, and, you know, have them vaccinate a bunch of their workers and, right. you know, find different creative ways to get more and more people vaccinated with that. You know, another one of the things that the Biden administration has been talking about is sort of bringing in FEMA to to have vaccination sites across the country. And the governor has sort of basically said he's not really interested in that. He's looking at that as, well, you know, the state of Florida is already doing, you know, drive through vaccination sites Mm -hmm. and bringing in the federal government's going to add another layer of bureaucracy and and it's going to make it more difficult. Uh, I'm not sure how, you know whether that's going to be an accepted view across the healthcare community necessarily, because I think there's a lot of people who are looking at the number of vaccines that have been delivered to Florida, but haven't been administered and saying, you know, pretty much do anything you can to let all the stop gags out and, and get as many people vaccinated as possible. Mm-hmm. So we're, we'll have to wait and see on what that approach ends up looking like, you know, after the inauguration, after, um, you know, the president starts, you know, really ramping up. And one of the things that has been a bit of a question mark too has been the messaging around it, like how much vaccine is in reserve? Are those doses actually available if they want to get them out quicker? There's been some confusion around that. Do you anticipate, A, that we may get a little more clarity with the, as the new administration kind of starts rolling with this plan to, to get these vaccines into the arms of Americans? I would expect there to be some more clarity because one of the things that the Biden administration has put an emphasis, emphasis on, at least in its transition process, has been um, transparency. They, they have talked about building some of these public facing dashboards that will give a little bit more information. Um, you know what you're talking about as far as the confusion right now with Moderna and Pfizer, those are two dose vaccines and the federal government was originally holding that second dose in reserve, mm-hmm. giving it to the states. The states were flooding, you know, uh, flooding the field, I think would be the, the sports term to, to get all those doses out sure. uh, while letting the federal government hold the reserve. Well, HHS came out and said, we're going to change policy on that. We're going to go ahead and start sending that second dose out. And it 
Washington Post has done some reporting that it appears that that has already been happening. So whether or not the there is actually a reserve that's going to be able to be increased so that we're getting more doses to states, you know, going forward is, is a bit of a question mark. Um, now, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll start seeing a little bit more transparency and a little bit more clarity because there is some mixed messaging between, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis, HHS secretary, Trump administration. There, there's sort of some mixed messages there on, on what is actually available to come down. So it's a bit of a question mark, but um, I would expect it to change, at least in, at the federal level, as far as the transparency. Indeed. Uh, Justin Senior, back to you for a moment, if I could. You were talking about staffing before and the fact that there has been a, a real impact on frontline healthcare workers getting sick in the community, not being able to staff up those hospital beds that are so sorely needed for folks who are getting sick from COVID-19 and having to be hospitalised. I mean, is there anything that a new administration can do there, or are we really talking about apples and oranges. This is a something that, if anything, maybe a state government could help out with. Are you looking for some change there that could help out hospitals that are struggling to sort of meet the demand? I think that that piece, um, we're a long way toward potentially solving that piece because the frontline healthcare workers have almost all received the first shot mm-hmm. and are about to receive their second. Uh, so that, I think, we may have been able to pull that population to safety. Let me say, I think, I think that the DeSantis administration really would have liked to have set a number. We want X number of million people vaccinated in Florida 65 and over by a certain date. But no knowledge of what the supply was going to be was the missing piece there, right? Without knowing what they were going to be supplied, it was very difficult for them to set a goal. Mm-hmm. I think the Biden administration is doing the right thing by saying this is the number that we want and this is the date that we want it done by because I think that sends the message to manufacturers, to distributors, and to the states in terms of exactly what is going to be expected of them. And they can set their goals and build their infrastructure accordingly. Our hospitals have the ability with about 48 hours notice, maybe maybe 72 hours notice, to be able to do 20 to 25,000 vaccinations a day. And we're just, we're just 14 hospital systems out of over 200 hospitals in the, in the state of Florida, mm-hmm. and we have that ability. That's, that's not counting what CVS and Walgreens and Publix might be able to bring to bear. We could actually get that up with about seven to 10 days to between 40 to 45,000. The governor knows that. There's been good communication in terms of what our capacity is, but ultimately we need to know what the supply is going to be. And so by the Biden administration saying this is our expectation, hopefully that does help the situation so that everybody can, can kind of rise to the level to meet that expectation. Uh, given the fact that your network of hospitals is, you know, by its very nature, a, a network of safety net hospitals, uh, are you feeling the impact of this pandemic more than other hospital systems? Yes, definitely. Uh, our, our hospitals have seen, uh, you know, nearly 60 percent of the COVID patients in the state of Florida uh, because we have academic medical centers in our in our group. Uh, we have been involved in about half of the clinical trials, so there's a lot of uh, movement in terms of advancing the science, but just a lot of patients as well. And and ultimately, you know, the patients being at our hospitals means that we felt all of the PPE supply issues back in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's it's been an extremely difficult year, uh, and uh, for the healthcare workers, it is an extremely stressful environment uh, to be working in. Is that PP issue, has that been resolved? Are we, are we going to be looking at any scenario in the next few months where, where 
you know, you're, you would be hoping that the federal government might requisition companies to start manufacturing things like ventilators and masks and gowns and gloves. You know, by by the summer, uh, the PPE issue was significantly better than it had been in the spring. So our hospitals were not running short of PPE. They were able to maintain 15 to 30 day supplies on hand. Um, and actually, the uh, their ability to perform elective procedures in Florida was tied to their ability to be able to supply their own personal protective equipment. So if they didn't have enough personal protective equipment and they had to go into the state's emergency supply, they had to start postponing elective procedures. So ultimately, our hospitals, by and large, were able to do it, um, and, and PPE became uh, a, a much better situation over the summer and has been, and has been better since then. Uh, but uh, it, it was definitely a really tight situation back in March, April, and May. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Amish Adelja with Johns Hopkins, if I could come back to you for a moment. One of the things I guess there's been a wee bit of confusion about over the last nine, ten months has been the role of some of those federal agencies like the NIH, the CDC. Are we going to see more of them, more of the, the officials from those agencies kind of front and center in the next few months, do you think, with this new administration? I do think that's going to be the case. If you go back to any other public health emergency, you often saw the CDC speaking directly to the public on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's going to be the norm, again, with a new CDC director, with the depolitization of some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, workings of the CDC. I think we will hear a lot more from them, a lot more risk guidance that's going to come from the CDC. I do think you'll also see uh, many scientists at the NIH not be really managed the way they were. Uh, from the from the White House level, and and I do think that that's going to be all for the better because we want to hear more from the scientists, more from the public health authorities, and less from the politicians. Uh, that we want the people who are experts to be guiding this response and to be speaking directly to the American public to help them understand what's going on and how to make better choices so that they don't expose themselves or others to this virus and know what to expect with the vaccine. I just wonder though how much uh, work there's going to be involved in that. And if you think about vaccinations in some communities where there's a level of skepticism already, uh, for example, in some parts of the African American community, for example, not necessarily really eager to to get in on a vaccination program. How much work is going to be need to be done, and how much can be done by a new administration to sort of change that? I think there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done, and I do think that we are going to have to be very proactive and really be transparent about this vaccine and the benefits, the risks, and and really try and persuade people that the vaccine is in their best interest. And I think that we have data on our side. We have science on our side. And I think when we get out of this kind of immediate atmosphere of misinformation and an outright lying and evasion that was coming from the White House, you're probably going to see more uh, willingness to accept the science based on this vaccine, but I do think that the vaccine hesitancy movement and the anti-vaccine movement is going to be coming out strong against this vaccine, especially as we start vaccinating the general public. And we're mm-hmm. going to not have to be in the, we don't want to be in a position where they're setting the agenda and we're responding to their arbitrary claims. So I do think there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done with vaccine communication, but we've done that before. We've done it with measles. We've done it with influenza and we've done it with the HPV Gardasil vaccine. So we're going to have to really pull out all the stops to to really convince people that this is in their best interest, and it is in their best interest. You know, I'm somebody that got vaccinated the moment I was able to be. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just say on the, on the he- hesitancy issue, for people 65 and over, there's almost no hesitancy. Right. We, we saw more hesitancy here in the healthcare workers, oddly enough. But as soon as they started getting it, the hesitancy really wore, wore away. Um, you know, it's like 50 when, when our hospitals would say, show of hands, who's willing to take it among the front line? 
back in November, boy, it was 50%. But way more than that ended up getting it. It was 50% got in the first wave. It got up to 60 or 70%. But I think, I think the, the number that is willing to take it in the 65 and over is probably approaching 95%. I mean, it is really high. They're scared, and they want this over with. There is, uh, I think, a level of difficulty, though, in, in trying to sort of sell all these, these messages at the same time, right? Because on the one hand, you have people saying, well, look, if I get the vaccine, doesn't that protect me? On the other hand, you have uh, agencies saying, look, just because you have a vaccine doesn't mean you need to stop taking those precautions. So how do you kind of balance those conflicting messages? Because what we are hearing from public health officials is, look, just because there's a vaccine out there and we are slowly getting the population vaccinated, you still have to take these precautions, keep wearing masks, keep practicing social distancing. And for a lot of people, that's like, kind of the last tour. They're like, I've had 10 months of this enough already. I think this is an important topic that needs a lot more discussion because there is a little bit of a split within our field where many of the infectious disease physicians uh, might be differing a little bit from their public health counterparts where uh, many of us are, are, are talking about the fact that after someone has gotten two doses of the vaccine and waited about two weeks, it's very unlikely that they're going to pose a risk of transmission. We know this this virus, that this vaccine is very effective at preventing symptomatic illness. We're getting data uh, imminently about that, the fact that it also does decrease transmission risks. We don't know how much, but, you know, for example, if it's two vaccinated people that are fully vaccinated, they're, them being together, there's no risk there. And we know that this vaccine, as more and more people get it, is going to have some impact on transmission. So I do think we have to start trying to not undersell this vaccine because this vaccine is, is uh, going to be game-changing, and it will uh, decrease transmission risks, and it will lead to the lifting of some of these guidances. And I think we have to really get the data behind us to show that, to be able to say it for sure. But many of us know uh, that with this vaccine, we're going to see decreased contagiousness amongst people. So I think this is going to be another challenge that we have to work out within our, our own community uh, to be able to, to have a, a message of, of hope with this vaccine. And, and I'm, I am worried about the underselling of the vaccine for just the reasons you've said, that this may discourage people from getting it, because if they think it's not going to change anything in their life, why will they get it? Indeed. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Amish Adelja. He is a senior scholar with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Dr. Adelja, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by Justin Senior. He's the chief executive of the Safety Net Hospital Alliance of Florida. Justin, thank you so much for your time as well. Thank you for having me. And Abe Abariah, WMFE's health reporter. Abe, thanks as always. Thank you. Up next, President Trump's immigration policy focused on his promise of a border wall and keeping people out of the U.S. What will the first 100 days of the Biden administration mean for undocumented immigrants and DACA recipients in Florida? We'll discuss when intersection returns in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. President Trump's immigration policy focused on his promise of a border wall and keeping people out of the U.S. So what will the first 100 days of the Biden administration mean for undocumented immigrants and recipients of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy in Florida? Joining me now is Maria Rodriguez. She is the executive director of the Florida Immigrant Coalition. Maria, thank you so much for being with us. Such a pleasure to speak to your audience there in Orlando. We have lots of members that are part of our coalition there, the Farmworker Association, Hope Community Center, Q Latinx, Florida Rising, um, many others. So thank you for the invitation. Certainly. So the, the past four years have been somewhat of an emotional roller coaster, and uh, you know there have been definitely some things that 
immigrants and various situations have had to to deal with over the last four years, um, in particular undocumented immigrants. What does the beginning of the Biden administration mean for some of these communities? We're really hoping it turns the page on the criminalization, exploitation, marginalization that so many Floridian families have had to face. Um, I think there's a sense of hope uh, to get things done and to to be able to move forward after four years of real chaos and erosion of democracy and uh, many of the institutions that uh, we thought we could rely on. Thinking back to some of the policies that were unveiled in that very first year in 2017, uh, I mean, some of them were pretty extraordinary, right? Um, anything kind of really stand out as you knew at that moment this was going to be a tough four years or potentially eight years to get through? What happens with politicians is that we listen to the rhetoric and they use a lot of venom and the rhetoric and we never know if they really mean it and they're going to put it into action. And unfortunately, Trump and the bigger problem, Trumpism, uh, which manifests itself Uh, in some local state uh, leaders as well, is that uh, that rhetoric actually impacts people's lives. So anything from uh, preventing people from working, preventing people from driving, separating families, increasing the enforcement mechanism, which comes at a very high moral and financial cost because it's our tax dollars that could and should be going to healthcare, to veterans, to homeless, to a variety of other real needs are being used to put Florida families into a detention, deportation, or incarceration machinery. So those are the choices that the new administration and this new phase in American history needs to understand and needs to embrace What's good for immigrant families, what's good for um, Floridian workers will be good for all of us. Do you think the Biden administration will be a complete reset for dreamers and undocumented immigrants, or is that wishful thinking? Well, we're very excited and pleased to see the level of commitment of the introduction of a proposal on day one that's putting some rhetoric into action. We hope that the administration will put their political social capital to move this legislation because it's not enough to introduce. We know that there's a lot of hurdles, whether it's the DACA or the temporary protected status, which are people who've been uh, protected from deportation but not having a legal permanent residency. And there's hundreds of thousands of those folks or whether it's farm workers who work sun up to sundown as essential workers, making sure that we have food security, which is a national security issue. Those segments can get some relief now in some way if Congress steps up to the opportunity in the moment. So is this less about uh, whatever the president does and more about just the, the, the lawmakers, whether uh, in the Senate, or the House, and, and I mean, kind of looking at the, the makeup of those two legislative bodies, do you have some hope, or, or what are your thoughts uh, on, on what kind of policies we might see pushed through 
with or without the input of uh, President Biden? In this moment, leadership really matters, whether that's leadership of the White House, because they have a huge influence uh, in Capitol Hill, obviously. But it's also leadership of our counties, of our municipalities, of our institutions, of our unions, of our churches. We need the leadership of the people to say very clearly what they've been saying, poll after poll. We support a path to citizenship for folks who've been here, who are uh, presenting themselves, their information, who are uh, contributing to our community. So the time is now for different sectors. And yes, the House of Representatives will have to contemplate various legislative proposals. The Senate will debate various legislative proposals, but there's many opportunities, whether that's, like I said earlier, for the Biden proposal to take shape into a viable legislative vehicle, which we will support. And we hope our Senator Rubio and Senator Scott see the value of turning the page and starting a new process of supporting immigrant integration and uh, maximizing contributions, or whether it's on the House side, there's various proposals, one that ties together TPS and DACA recipients, one that looks at the farm workers. So there's many legislative vehicles that recognize that immigrant families and immigrant workers are essential to our economy, to our food safety, to, to our communities, and that we need to move on because the unfair, unjust criminalization of people cost us, like I said earlier, morally, but it also costs us in dollars. And we want to divest from that and invest in human priorities that impact all of us. Do you think you have the business community on your side when it comes to thinking about the, the value of undocumented workers and, and what they may be putting into the uh, the agricultural economy or, or other aspects of the economy here in Florida? We have many, many sectors on our side. We have uh, the business community knows that it makes economic sense for workforce development. Some of them are civil libertarians. The faith community knows that it makes sense morally. The labor community, the organizers understand that when one group of workers is exploited, it impacts all workers. So there's a unison of voices. The problem is that this common sense solutions and moving us forward towards a plan to recognize that we are benefiting from people's labor, so we should recognize uh, our humanity, is that that chorus is being hijacked by a few. And we're really hoping that Senator Rubio in particular can really see that we need to move forward this conversation so we can together find solutions to our economic prosperity, our security, our climate concerns, healthcare, education, and everything else. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Senator Rubio because you know he was part of that bipartisan group um, uh, a few years back now trying to come up with uh, some solution to the the immigration question that that several administrations have tried to figure out um, and and haven't been able to. I mean, it, it just seems like a, a uh, an issue that that really nobody has a good handle on how to move forward. Uh, are you redoubling your efforts now then with this new administration for Senator Rubio in particular and and 
I mean, how does Senator Scott fit into that, the, the other senator from Florida? Yeah, Senator Rubio was part of what they call the Gang of Eight that negotiated mm-hmm. a compromise and passed a bill in the Senate in 2013. Unfortunately, under Republican Speaker of the House Boehner, it never came to a vote. We, we worked so hard pressuring, at the time, Congressman Webster and others to just bring it to a vote, to just let democracy happen. And that never happened. So there's been through the years, various efforts to find some compromise. I think we're in a new moment. I think that it's clear that the American electorate uh, is moving uh, forward and needs a new direction. Um, And I think there's uh, a lot of investment stakeholders and goodwill that are diverse. It's really a broad coalition that is asking for this reform for a variety of reasons. We have seen Senator Rubio play many roles. Um, We don't know where he will land. I know that he will uh, hear from many of our constituents and our members that are fairly diverse. Like Like I mentioned, business, both small and large, faith, multiple faith orientations, community organizations, labor organizations. So we'll work very hard. I think uh, uh, Senator Scott doesn't have the trajectory, um, but also will be important, as will be the entire congressional delegation. Mm-hmm. And that begins at home, because those who are listening to the show today may be involved in HOAs, in, in universities, in churches, and all of us can play a role to, to really address this. This is a racial justice issue. This is a worker rights issue. This is a democracy issue. This is a security issue. Um, so many uh, reasons why we need to bring folks out of the shadows and into a path to citizenship. Maria Rodriguez, the executive director of the Florida Immigrant Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Still to come, there's hope that Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue plan could provide a shot in the arm for the economy. We'll discuss the details with economists Sean Snaith and Hank Fishkind. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. We're taking a look at what the first 100 days of the new administration could mean for Central Florida. Two of the biggest challenges facing the Har- two of the biggest challenges facing the Biden-Harris administration are the pandemic and the recession. And Central Florida's tourism and hospitality industry was hard hit by that pandemic. Now there's hope that Biden's 1.9 trillion dollar American Rescue Plan could provide a shot in the arm for the economy. We're joining us for more, uh, WMFE economic commentator Hank Fishkind, president of Fishkind Litigation Services. Dr. Fishkind, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be with you, Matthew. Also joined by Sean Snaith. He's the director of the University of Central Florida's Institute for Economic Forecasting. Dr. Snaith, thank you as well. My pleasure. Let's just talk a little bit about the context of what the administration, the new administration, is inheriting in terms of the economy and what that means for Central Florida um, Hank Fishkind, what's your assessment of how Central Florida's economy is doing right now? Well, it's clearly struggling, Matthew. Uh, the uh, pandemic recession has been particularly hard on us given the structure of our economy. We have an elevated unemployment rate and uh, the uh, process of recovery is slow. Dr. Snaith, your thoughts on that? Do you, you kind of share that view about how we're doing right now? 
Uh, yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, but you know, we've uh, we've cleared a, an important hurdle uh, in terms of uh, the, the tourism sector's recovery, and that is the uh, you know discovery and, and manufacture and administration of uh, vaccines uh, for COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, that's not going to be a uh, uh, instant cure uh, to our tourism sector. But I think as we as we move through twenty twenty one. Uh, it will help the recovery in that sector to accelerate out of, uh, you know, what was a, a very, very deep hole. So does it really just depend on how fast uh, the vaccine rollout can progress from here? Because there have been a few bumps in the road so far. As Sean said, uh, certainly the trajectory of vaccinations will be very important. Uh, but even with all that, uh, there's going to be some lasting uh, changes and damage that's been done. Mm-hmm. Such as? Well, uh, for example, uh, we now know that many people can work from home. Many people are going to continue to do that. That really affects the amount of office space. It affects the demand for lunch and meals downtown. Uh, We're probably not going to see a recovery in business travel anytime soon. Uh, Much of that may be, some of that gone forever. Uh, So those are significant uh, long-term changes, Matthew. Sean, when you think about, uh, you know, what central florida economy kind of drives on or what what drives the economy a lot of it is tourism and travel right we have a a world-class airport there's a massive convention center so people coming in and out of central florida that kind of keeps things ticking along so thinking about the reframing of things and working from home do you see that sort of taking a significant bite out of the economy of central florida in the long term well i mean i think i think hank's right uh in that the business uh Travel recovery is going to lag, uh, I think, significantly behind uh, leisure travel. But we saw uh, some encouraging uh, passenger data uh, at OIA over the holiday uh, period, uh, which it was the busiest airport in the country. Now, mm-hmm. uh, still down 40 plus percent from where we were the previous holiday season, but. You know, compared to March and April when uh, passenger traffic was down 98%, um, you know, that's a, a significant uh, step toward, uh, toward recovery. Um, you know, I think that, again, you know, this is not uh, going to be fixed overnight. Uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, there is pent-up demand. I think people have been, you know, uh, pent-up literally, uh, you know, in their homes uh, for for much or most of the pandemic, and I think the, you know, the desire to kind of try to get back to something close to uh, close to normal uh, will will continue to build. Mm-hmm. So, if we think about what um, Joe Biden and his administration, what what the proposal is in terms of the economy, he has what he's calling the American Rescue Plan. It's a one point nine trillion dollar plan. There, quite a lot to unpack. I'm wondering how closely you've looked at this so far, Hank Fishkind, and, and what parts of the plan you think are going to have the biggest impact on Central Florida. Sure. Well, in terms of the plan itself, Matthew, uh, most analysts don't think that the whole $1.9 trillion is going to pass. Remember, it's got to get through Congress. We have a 50-50 split, mm-hmm. uh, probably uh, going to use the budget reconciliation process. So what that means politically is that the centrist Democrats and some Republicans are going to have a lot of power. So the, the, the best estimates you know, are in the 500 to $750 billion range. Uh, most at risk probably are uh, payments to state and local governments. There's been a lot of controversy. The minimum wage may not pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but 
the, something will pass. Something large will pass, and it's very important uh, for the economy of Central Florida uh, because it will continue to boost demand, and that's prevented us from falling into another recession. Um, Sean Snaith, do you see things kind of moving quickly in Congress to get some kind of package through, uh, or do you think there will be some, some things kind of gumming up the works and stopping some of that money getting through to the, the state and local level? Uh, well, yeah, I think I pointed out a, a couple potential uh, speed bumps in the process. But, uh, you know, w- w- one thing you can say about uh, Democrats is they, they, they tend to uh, march in lockstep when it comes to policy. And, um, you know, while the, the, the majorities aren't what they were in, in 2008, um, you know, they pushed through some you know pretty large, complex, expensive uh, legislation in the form of the Affordable Care Act mm-hmm. and the Dodd-Frank uh, financial regulatory law. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, something will get done. Um, you know, what elements are going to be in that final, uh, you know, uh, piece of legislation relative to the wish list of the uh, Biden administration, I think, remains yet to be seen. Hopefully, you know, it, it'll be more targeted uh, when it comes to these payments to the households that, that need them the most. Right. And, you know, to be to be sure, you know, the the, the segment of our, our, our economy that has borne the brunt of these lockdowns and, and, and pandemic uh, recession have been the, the lower income earners. Um, you know, that's where the unemployment re- remains. You know, most people... Many people were lucky enough to be able to work from home uh, throughout the pandemic and the lockdown. But, uh, you know, here in central Florida, uh, we saw, you know, we still have the highest uh, unemployment rate in the state. And we have a lot of workers that uh, you know, didn't have that luxury and mm-hmm. are still uh, still out of work. If we think about a couple of the specifics, then, um, you know, there's more stimulus money in that bill. We could see some of that, some $1,400 or so. Um, and there's also... Unemployment, the notion of boosting that to $400 a week, that would be an extra $100 in the federal unemployment. Uh, Hank Fishkind, first on the on the stimulus check, what is the immediate impact if, if that can get rolled out fairly quickly? Well, it would be very significant. Uh, as Sean said, we have a lot of people who are really hurting and need the money. Uh, uh, so uh, it, it does have an impact. Uh, an even bigger impact comes from the extension of the unemployment and the increase in the unemployment insurance because that goes directly to people who need the money, too. Mm-hmm. So the combination of those things will be a significant benefit. I'm wondering, too, if you sort of look long term, do you think, uh, Sean Snaith, we are going to see a, a significant reshaping of the central Florida economy? Like, could there be a big move away from the hospitality and entertainment sort of field and, and, and do other things which you know, local governments have been trying to do bit by bit over the last few years in terms of getting into the more of the health technology sector and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I think that uh, the, the, the need and, and the desire to diversify the economy is, is not something that's new in Florida or central Florida. You know, I think this uh, particular crisis and how it uh, so dramatically impacted tourism will, you know, redouble efforts uh, going forward. But um, I'm always a little bit skeptical about you know, sort of uh, permanent changes from from temporary events. And I mean, I think that, you know, COVID-19, as uh, bad as it's been, uh, you know, will uh, in the long run be, be a temporary uh, event. One of the other things that uh, Joe Biden has pledged to do is to raise corporate income taxes 7%. Um, I mean, what might 
the ramifications of that be, Hank Fishkind? Are we going to see layoffs because of uh, corporate tax rates going up? No, uh, but that's only part of uh, the Biden program to build back better. So, uh, yeah, uh, corporate tax is going to go up. Individual taxes are going to go up for sure, I think. I think it will get through Congress. I think Sean's right about the Democrats being able to do that. Uh, but there's a huge infrastructure and training program components to build back better, and it will boost the growth of GDP significantly. And so I think that the growth multipliers will greatly offset the negative impact of the higher taxes. Mm-hmm. Just to sort of round things out here, I mean, we are still in the grip of a pandemic. It, it's going to take a while for that to that situation to resolve. Um, Hank Fishkind, what, what do you think the next three months or so are going to look like economically for Central Florida? Um, it's going to be a struggle. Uh, it'll get better uh, as time goes on. Uh, certainly, the uh, the nine hundred million dollar billion dollars that Congress passed in December. Uh, is preventing a further slide into recession. The new package will help even more. And vaccination rates are going to accelerate dramatically. So I think things will slowly get better over the next uh, 100 days here in central Florida. Sean Snaith, what do you think the next 100 days holds economically for this area? Yeah, I I, I don't uh, expect to see much of a change in in the current trajectory. I mean, you know, the vaccines are not going to, the rollout of the vaccines are not going to be, you know, an adrenaline shot that has an immediate effect uh, on tourism. I I think the first few months will, you know, there'll be a lot of wait and see as to what's going to come out of Washington, D.C. And hopefully we can iron out some of the issues with the distribution of, uh, of the vaccine and get a greater percent of the at-risk population, um, you know, having received it. Uh, and then I think, you know, as we roll into the spring and into the summer, uh, things are going to look a lot closer to normal uh, than they did this past summer. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Sean Snaith is the director of the University of Central Florida's Institute for Economic Forecasting. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. And we're also joined by Hank Fishkind. He is WMFE's economic commentator and president of Fishkind Litigation Services. Dr. Fishkind, thank you as well. Thank you, Matt, and thanks to your listeners. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for today's show from Clarissa Moon and Abe Abariah. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on the NPR One app. And you can find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.